this is Castle One. Race officer speaking. That's a good one, Jimmy. They're gaining on the Hello podcast listeners and welcome back to part two of our chat with Australian sailing legend John Bertrand. Many of you may already know John's story, but if you haven't yet listened to part one, head back there first. It's a great insight into the build-up to what we're about to hear, which is John's account of one of the most important sailboat races in the history of sailboat racing. In fact, if you're listening to this podcast off the back of the end of season three, you'll have just listened to American Tom Whidden talking about this cup from the other side of the fence. In that chat, Tom uses the phrase race of the century, which is exactly what it was, the biggest yacht race the world had ever seen. Before we pick things up with John, if you're enjoying season four of the podcast, then do head over and show your support at buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. It's easy to use and your help allows us to stay ad free and to keep on delivering these uninterrupted stories. So a huge thanks for the coffees. It makes a real difference. As I stand here recording this edition, it's impossible not to feel a slight sense of history. As we mentioned in episode one and in many previous episodes about the cup, the New York Yacht Club had held onto the trophy for 132 years. Winning it was almost impossible. But time after time, challengers would head over to Newport to take on the Americans and lose. But as I say these words, exactly 39 years ago to the day, John Bertrand and his crew on board Australia 2 would be preparing for the biggest day of their sailing lives. The race of the century, the only ever sudden death seventh race in the then history of the America's Cup. We join our chat with John contemplating the upcoming battle as we briefly discuss the design risks associated with Ben Lexon's forward-thinking Australia 2. There was no project ever as well prepared as that Australia 2 project. The dream was for us to win the America's Cup and when we crossed the finishing line the boat would implode into a million pieces. We got rid of all television sets, we got rid of all newspapers into the compound. It's a constant cup design conundrum. How far do you go with innovation before it becomes a bit of a folly? Yeah. At the time, did you worry about that, that you'd be straying too far from the realms of sensible? Well, we had the fallback that we had option for Challenge 12, and we could take that. And interesting enough, with all the work that we did over in in uh, Fremantle and then ultimately in Melbourne on Port Phillip Bay, it was still unclear which boat was was superior between a Challenge 12 and, uh, and Australia 2. Uh, but we made the, uh, but the pre-start ability of uh, Australia 2 was such that said, let's do that, Take that's our boat. Uh, and the other syndicate was owned then by a guy called Dick Pratt in, from Melbourne and John Savage was the skipper of that boat. And uh, when we went across to the US, we were very well organised relative to any previous America's Cup challenge, very tight. Compatibility of the team 
Our team lived together for a couple of months together in one house to test the compatibility. Some of the, we had to let a couple of people go because they didn't brush their teeth properly or whatever, you know, all these idiosyncrasies because we knew we were off to war to America. You know, how far are well met, but the bottom line is, um, you know, we're, we're us against the world. Again, that's the way we saw it. Created the boxing kangaroo flag and men at work, our battles flag, our battle hymn. You know, it's a different type of mentality. And, and, and as a result of a lot of experience that brought us to that point. Uh, but we're still slow downwind, got hammered by the Italians. And some very creative work by Schnackenberg and, uh, and uh, Huey Trahan created new spinnaker designs, smaller. Uh, for, uh, smaller shoots, quite a lot smaller in the girths, and that brought us to life. In addition to that, Schnack's created a new mainsail, which brought us to life in light, medium air, which was a little bit like a starboat sail. Beautiful twist up high. First time we were able to get the sail to twist instead of being open in the middle. And uh, that brought that boat to life. Tom Schnackenberg, another, another genius. It's interesting that nothing really changes in the cup, because even now when we... You know, when we t when we commentate on the America's Cup, it's about incremental changes every day. You know, and uh, and it was the same then, obviously. And um, John, I'm going to ask you if you were if you were ready. Did you feel ready? Did you have any doubts that you were the right guy to lead this band of brothers into battle against Dennis Connor and and the machine of the U.S.? Uh, I had a lot of doubts, no question about it. You know, because again, it had never been done before. And you, as you well know, uh, even with the best intent and the best preparation, you, in the sport of sailing, you do not know, you cannot say, I'm going to win this thing. You, know, in, you, have, all the, all the, you have all the uh, facilities and all the intent, but the fact is wind, water, all these things change in the sport of sailing. Uh, and the fact that this had never been done before, and there were a lot of reasons why, because the Americans were damn good at organisation and playing the game. Uh, but there was, there was a, no project ever as well prepared as that Australia 2 project at that time in the history of the America's Cup, there's no question. And the team we had on the boat, uh, you know, uh, Grant Simmer, who went on 11 America's Cups since then. I think the youngest technical navigator ever in the history of cup sailing young engineer, Australian sail, uh, lightweight Sharpie champion like myself. Uh, we had, um, you know, um, Huey Trahan, huge amount of experience. Before that, Peter Gilmore was a tactician. He decided he'd, the team environment was too large for him and he went on to endeavour to uh, compete at the Olympics. So uh, anyway, Huey came on. It was, it was a better choice for us, more natural, more mature person. It was good. Uh, Colin Bischel, never wear shoes, most naturally gifted sailor you could ever come across, world starboat champions, silver medal at the Olympics in Atlanta, you know. So we had some really interesting characters. We didn't have Olympic gold medalists on the boat. I was, uh, at that stage with my bronze, I was the most, uh, you know, credited. Uh, whereas Dennis had, you know, Olympians all the way through. But we had a really tight team with huge trust and, uh, you know, and respect within the organisation that was hard for us to be killed off in the process. And we had a boat technically which was very good and being upgraded all the time as we knew more and more about you know, the, the machine that we had.
there was much controversy and litigation around your famous keel. How much did that rattle the New York Yacht Club? Tell us what they tried to do and do you think DC was at all rattled? Well, the fact that we had the audacity to keep the boat covered never been done before when you look back on it. And uh, so they didn't know what they were racing against, which was of great concern to, uh, to Dennis and Halsey Hereshoff and Tommy Whitten and so on, and rightfully so, because our win-loss ratio was very good against the other, other challengers. I think we, we won 48 of the 55 races over the summer, and we did a lot of racing. And we did a lot of full-size full America's Cup courses, unlike the Americans. And that was one of the reasons that we're able to develop our spinnakers uh, because we're being kicked in the ass by, by these conventional boats downwind. And um, bottom line is, is that uh, the, uh, I think really, you know, when we're coming in terms of the, you know, the, the response and the, the time, this whole program really did come together with incremental changes on the 11th hour. And interesting enough, we won the America's Cup downwind against uh, against Liberty and, uh, and Dennis and the team. And they were running with, I think looking back on it, they were slow against any of the challenges downwind, not just us. And uh, part of it was they used very short courses, multiple races every day, and they never figured out that there could be a problem downhill. Our long legs downhill, it just showed up if there was a problem. Uh, with any of these, uh, you know, the sales, for example. The U New York Yacht Club weren't happy, though, were they? I mean, they did some extraordinary things. To yes, that's right. Yes. And people forget, or history forgets, that the uh, Peter DeSavery had generated a press conference where he showed the keel that they actually had, uh, which was accepted by uh, World Sailing, IYRU, I think it was called in those days, uh, which was a wing keel. They never, and a guy called uh, uh, Howlett, I think it's Ian Howlett. Ian Howlett, yeah. Yeah, a designer. Uh, he came up with this concept at the uh, uh, university, Southampton University, and uh, it was never actually implemented, but that was okayed by the uh, IYRU at the time. And that really burst the balloon of the New York Yacht Club. But they, they tried everything, in, including trying to get an affidavit from the chief technician at the ship model testing facility um, in uh, in Holland that they in turn were the designers, not Ben Lexon and so on and so forth. That was even days up to, and in, would you believe, like two days before the first race of the America's Cup, Alan Bond and uh, Warren Jones had a meeting with the New York Yacht Club Defence Committee led by McCullough. And uh, I can't I can't actually uh, describe the words that Alan used, but it became clear that the New York Yacht Club were working with a crazy man, that he, he would expose the New York Yacht Club to the world and it would be a total embarrassment to the New York Yacht Club if they went forward. And using uh, classic Australian blue uh, words to carry the, the, the day. So the New York Yacht Club... Became, it became clear to them that, uh, you know, Alan wasn't going to back down. Yeah, all these backstories is just amazing. And uh, so, you know, we went to battle. Okay, John, let's get into the America's Cup racing. What was the atmosphere like? D describe it, day one. Well, it's, you can't 
And I told the guys, you know, having been involved in three previous America's Cups, and some of them had already been involved, of course, Cheek Longley and so on, Skippy, uh, you can't practice the environment, regardless of the best intent. You can visualize it, but you can't practice it to the real world. So first day of the America's Cup at the dock, you couldn't really communicate more than a meter in front of you. That was the sound of helicopters above and fixed wing airplanes above that. So there, there was a swarm of helicopters above us. But I will tell you the backstory here, and is that we had our Prime Minister of the day, Bob Hawke, was in Newport. He'd came, he and Paul Keating, who were the new government of the day, um, uh, had, were at, uh, in Washington, D.C. for an international monetary conference, and they came down for the first race. So I was, the boat left at 9 a.m. plus or minus 30 seconds. It was a military operation. And uh, at that stage, uh, as we left the dock, the boxing kangaroo flag would be broken out, which is our battle flag, red gloves for aggression, pumped up chest for the pride of a nation. You know, when you study armies over the last thousand years, we typically go to war with symbols, music and, and flags. So we create our own battle flag, which is now synonymous with winning in Australia. The Australian Olympic program, our official flag for all Olympic sports is the boxing kangaroo flag. How cool is that? It's just fantastic. It makes us so proud. And our battle hymn was Men at Work Down Under, uh, which is just uh, it became a gold hit in Australia. So just before we uh, are about to leave, Prime Minister Bob Hawke came down to the boat and I was on the stern of the boat and I said, where's the effect of, uh, well, you know, welcome, Mr. Hawke, realising that we didn't have much time to talk. And he said, Johnny, he says, uh, call me Bob. It's typical of this man. And uh, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, Bob, uh, we'll give it our best shot. He says, bullshit. He says, destroy the bastards. <laughs> so that was the Prime Minister of our country. You know. So we went to war. <laughs> on day one, uh, and I remember trying to talk to Huey, you know, and it was, you couldn't, you know, this is the noise, it was just deafening. And, uh, you know, this Australia 2 project was towed out, as was Liberty, and we went out day one. And then you have to race. Yeah. I mean, that first race, from memory, it started well, but what happened next? Uh, is that the, that's the, uh, the mainsail falling down? <laughs> no, <laughs> the steering, the oh, broken steering. steering. Okay, so we're neck and neck going around, going down the bottom mark. And it was one of these experience factors. We have quite a lot of breeze. We had probably quite a lot, you know, 12 knots or so, 13. Uh, and uh, Dennis was uh, inside, not overlapped at that stage. No, it was actually, no, he was, we were a beam, but we weren't close to the lured mark at that stage. And I made the decision to uh, to actually uh, shy up and go over his stern, okay, on the uh, jibe onto port. And as we did that, then the basically the keel, the uh, the rudder system let go underneath the deck, and we lost steerage totally. So uh, the weldings pulled apart. Part of the deal with uh, with Ben was is it's all about power to weight ratio. You know, he loved F one. The world. I'll give you an idea. Benny's dream was to design an F1 car for Ferrari, no one else, where the, the fuel tank was designed just big enough such that when you cross the finishing line, the 12-cylinder the, uh, 
thousand horsepower engine would be sucking on vapor fuel. This is perfection in Benny's mind, right? This is the man we had to deal with. In addition to that, the, uh, the uh, fuselage would fall off, the carbon fiber was just strong enough to hang in there and then the whole thing would, because of um, you know, fatigue. And this, the uh, driver was unconscious. Why? He was just given enough water to keep him going for 55 laps and then he was totally dehydrated. So this was his world. So for Benny, the dream was for us to win the America's Cup. And when we crossed the finishing line, the boat would implode into a million pieces. Okay, that was perfection. So when you looked at Australia 2, it was not tacked together. It was built beautifully, but the bottom line is everything was really light. And it was about power to weight ratio. You take out a, you know, an ounce here, then you're particularly up high. And uh, so the under facilities underneath, the, all the steering gear, when we looked at it, uh, it was, we had to be strength, we had to strengthen the whole thing. It wasn't battle ready at this stage. And uh, so what was, what was the, the reason there? Not a good enough maintenance program. It's, it's a management issue. Wasn't bad luck, the management program. Maintenance in particular wasn't strong enough. So a difficult first day, a disappointing first day. Race two, more gear failures. You say a problem with the mainsail. Now two and L down, and then you traded wins. 3-1 down, match point. How tough was that? What do you remember saying to everyone that day? You're 3-1 down, it's match point. Well, it's one of these things where, you know, backs to the wall and you've been there. And, you know, many, many people on this podcast will have been there. And this, this whole question of, okay, focusing on the outcome compared to the, to the process. We talk about process all the time. And from my perspective, it was this whole issue of, of uh, you know, if we not survive, if we get the, if we just do our job, we'll be invited back tomorrow. Very simple. And I remember saying to the boys, picture yourself on the back of an eagle, a thousand feet in the air, and we look down and we see our boat, our little boat, Australia Two, sailing through the water, and we see a bow, bow wave and a stern wave. And everyone on this podcast, I'm sure, has been on the back of an eagle. <laughs> so at any rate, so we're on the back of this, this eagle and we have some big scissors and we fly down and we cut off the bow waves and we cut off the stern waves and we release our boat for its full potential. And in my zany manner, that's I remember talking to the team about that, that let's release the beast and let us flow with uh, the potential that we really have. And uh, let's go out and just do our thing. Did you say that to a boat full of Aussie sailors? Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the, uh, on the boat going out. Yeah, let's release this machine. Let's cut off the bow wave and the stern wave. And then I've, I've actually went further and I said, the only people who are interested in the bow wave and the stern wave are the journalists who know nothing, otherwise they'd be on the boat. So forget about all the stuff. In fact, we, we got rid of all television sets. We got rid of all newspapers into the compound. And we, we just went into our bubble. The only person that could get through to me on the telephone was my mum in Australia, God bless her, and, and, and a mentor, a guy called Billy Osborne. Other than that, I had no contact with the outside world, nor did the rest of the team. John, all of that's easy to say, isn't it? But fundamentally, the next race was crucial. You had to stop the rot, crush the momentum. 
How responsible, how much responsibility did you feel? Uh, I felt, it's interesting, I felt empowered by the organisation, by the team. Alan, uh, Jim Hardy, you know, because he'd been there, done it all, he was there, he was fantastic. Uh, I felt empowered by, uh, uh, you know, by uh, Grant and uh, Bishow and all these characters. We're in this thing together. So did I escape for the boat? Yes, of course. But I, this thing was really tight organisation. And we had the culture and we had the trust in the organisation such that we were, it was very, very interesting. We, we were, were empowered from within. You win that race. Now it's 3-2, still match point. Talk to me about race six. Reading the reports, it seemed like you were all in tune, sailed the shifts perfectly, perhaps had an element of belief by then. Yeah. And that was a, actually, it was a turning point. Um, I can still see it's a long time ago, but uh, I remember uh, the uh, Dennis and the team, I think it was, they tacked away on trying to, you know, take another shift and it was the wrong thing. We could see it, they'd made a mistake as they were attacking relative to what we thought was the game. It was actually quite tricky. A lot of the breeze was coming more offshore. And uh, we, I, felt, I felt a chink in their armour, most interesting, for the first time, in terms of their confidence within their decision-making ability. And we actually hit the shifts to the point where it became crazy, you know, where we it just, you know, the rich got richer. And it was one of those things where the, where the air evaporated from behind relative to what we were sailing in, and we just got further and further in front. Um, and uh, we, I, I remember competing in the, uh, the 76 Olympics, one of the races I won in the Finn, and it just all came together again. You know, there was just this, without even having to feel. It was this sense, it's this intuitive feeling of the next wind shift. And that's how we felt, and that's how I felt on that particular day. It was an intuitive decision-making where it was all flowing. Everything was slow motion. Sometimes it just happens. And sure other times does. You, you battle it all the way. Well, John, at three all, you called a lady and the next day recruited the help of Ireland's Harold Cudmore, a neighbour of mine. I'm very fond of him. Why do that? Why not just keep the momentum going? Uh, I, because my confidence was uh, lacking in terms of pre-start, that my time on distance was off, okay, and I needed more. Uh, I, I needed more practice, you know, and uh, so we got uh, Harold in, and he was terrific. He basically take no prisoners, nothing to lose, and we had some really good intensive uh, pre-match, pre-start uh, um, practice, and that was great for me. So with all the uh, you know the the racing that had done. The the actual pre start with uh, Harold was by far the most intense that we we're able to conjure up, and that was a great benefit for me to get back into a, a sense of rhythm in terms of pre start. It's impressive when a leader puts his hand up and says, "You know, I I need a bit of help." Yeah, but I felt confident. Interesting enough with the team around me. You know, again, was, I didn't feel that. Uh, Again, there's this whole issue of, uh, you know, we were, it was a one plus one equals three environment. Very similar to military, you know, SAS or, 
Navy SEALs or you know, we have SAS or commandos in Australia and they talk about that all the time where people just come together where you are, you are joined at the hip and we felt that way. So did I feel exposed in terms of be, uh, putting my hand up saying I'm vulnerable? I did not, no. They call it the race of the century and I think it probably is, yeah. The full significance really only became apparent when we got home. The most memorable events in modern Australian history, John F. Kennedy's assassination, Armstrong on the moon, and Australia 2 crossing the finishing line. On the 26th of September, you headed out at three all, the longest winning streak in sporting history, 132 years, and this was the closest anyone had come. The final race of the 1983 Cup, and it was a real nail-biter. How much pressure did you feel going into that race? Uh, well, that was, that was a lot. Yeah, that was a lot. Um, we had a sense of what was happening in Australia, although we could only, in hindsight, visualise only a small percentage of really what was happening, where the country stopped. Um, but it was one of those things where uh, once we got going, and again, you know, this beautiful communication between myself and Huey and, and, and Grant, and Bishow and Yarup and, you know, Damien on the bow and all that sort of thing and Chink. Um, it came together to the point where, again, it was slow motion, you know, where you say, okay, how do we, how do we click into this world where you really become very, very efficient in the way an organisation can operate? And uh, as it turns out, uh, you know, the leads changed, I think, six or seven times. So it was, the boats were very, very similar in speed. Um, Dennis and his team had found a loophole in the rule, and good luck to them, where they reduced weight in the boat and added sail area, depending on the wind forecast. And they, uh, they successfully did that. So the boat, you know, it was really nothing upwind at all. Downwind, we were, we were faster, but uh, at one stage, we were way out of it. You know, we're 47 seconds behind or something. We could hardly read their sail numbers. Winds were very tricky, uh, the, you know, and uh, at one stage, well, we're, as I say, the lead changed so many times, but um, they were able to get a couple of left shifts and extra pressure and they were sort of gone. Uh, so it was, you might say, heart-in-the-mouth race, that's for sure. They call it the race of the century, and I think it probably is, yeah. <laughs> You were behind, but then you got ahead. Leading, covering liber liberty, an intense tacking duel followed. Dummy tacks were thrown. How intense was it becoming on the boat? What was it like? Uh, it was one of those things where we were, um, this was a, um, well, of course, an opportunity of a lifetime, no question about it. But uh, it was like a, um, a hit squad. It was, uh, it was so well, you know, our organisation was so well practised that uh, hardly anything had to be said. Yeah, very, very, the, we, the, the leg where we actually came from behind and, and, and passed them, when we looked at the computer printouts, it was as close to optimum that we'd ever sailed the boat. So, uh, you know, at one stage, uh, when we first got passed on that particular, the fifth leg with the spinnakers, um, Kenny Judge, who was the trimmer, he didn't realise we were in front until probably 30 or 40 seconds after we'd passed them, where it became clear. So he was so locked into 
you know, the trimming and whatever, and also that final leg, lots of, obviously lots of tax, uh, lots of covering, uh, plenty of, but it was a, it was like a hit squad. It was like a, a military operation. Yeah. You saved the best for last. It all came together. John, you crossed the line in the end, 41 seconds ahead. Just take a moment, describe that for us. What was said amongst this this exceptional team? Well, first of all, the uh, I remember the uh, smoke coming out of the gun. Don't remember the sound at all. I remember the New York Yacht Club uh, committee members with their boater hats. Uh, for, let me just wind back. So one of the funny things in Newport was is that we'd occasionally go down Main Street and, you know, I'd say to Benny, good morning, Benny, swat, as if I'm swatting flies in Australia. Well, of course, there's no swat, no flies in Newport. They eradicated those a century ago, right? <laughs> not, not acceptable. And uh, so the Australian salute was this swatting thing, okay? It's hand from one side to the other as if you're swatting flies. And the Americans picked up on that and they thought that we're going, perhaps the pressure was such that it was a nervous inflection, okay? As we turned, as it figured, as we had heard later. When we crossed the finishing line, there were these dudes up on the, uh, on the deck of Black Knight with their boater hats on. And as we crossed the line in unison, as they were swat, literally impersonating swatting flies, they called out, well done, gentlemen. <laughs> in unison swatting the flies, the Australian salute, okay? But for us, uh, crossing that line, it was obviously, it was a relief. We could go home. And, of course, then the excitement and, uh, you know, the, the outpouring of emotion of... Uh, but it was really, it didn't... The, the full significance really only became apparent when we got home. And still is. You know, the number of people still literally come up in the street, even though it's, you know, 40 odd years ago, if they're old enough to come up to say not what I was doing, but what they were doing when we crossed the line. The country stopped. The, the, apparently we ran out of green and gold ribbon. You could not buy a bottle of champagne in Australia a day after the America's Cup. So the celebrations, I'm told, we were halfway around the world in Newport, but the celebrations, I'm told, were similar to the end of World War II for one yacht race. It's extraordinary. But it wasn't that. It was Australia taking on the world and it was Everest here. And everyone taking on the Americans. Yeah, exactly. racing for everyone. Uh, John, let's talk about the opposition. How did Dennis take it? Can you imagine being Dennis Connor at that moment? Well, Dennis, we've never really talked about the, the America's Cup. Dennis and I, and we've raced against each other quite a lot in Etchell since, but rivers run deep. And of course he came back and won in 87, you know, so he redeemed himself. But one thing I have said to Dennis in the past is, you know, mate, you owe me everything, I made you famous. <laughs> Otherwise, up until then, nobody cared, <laughs> in America that is. So he, he was able to come back and uh, redeem himself in, in, uh, in, in Fremantle. But yeah, so, uh, you know, we, there's uh, our mutual respect, obviously, between us two. But uh, Dennis, um, you know, he missed the the the, uh, the uh, handing over ceremony. He, apparently, he was told the wrong date. 
Uh, so he was back in San Diego at the time, and uh, the New York Yacht Club Commodore flew to uh, to Paris uh, on business. So it was the Vice Commodore that presented a guy called Bob Stone. I'll tell you the story, your listeners will love this. So Walter Cronkite, okay, the most trusted man in America. He was the man in 1980, sorry, 1962, 63, when the President of the United States was assassinated. CBS, he took his glasses off and was seen to be a tear in his eye and he says, my fellow Americans, our President is dead. Okay, so this is Cronkite. Walter Cronkite, he came to Australia and his two loves of uh, sport was Davis Cup tennis and America's Cup. So he came out and Australia won the Davis Cup that year and he came out to uh, see the trophy and we took him to a barbecue with the, with the team and so on. It was great. So, you know, so Walter told us the following story, that the night before the final race of the America's Cup, that seventh race, Commodore McCullough asked uh, Walter into the, into the New York Yacht Club to get his advice on the following. If those people win tomorrow, couldn't even say Australians, if those people win tomorrow, what do you think about the following scenario? Uh, we have a very good amateur photographer in the basement uh, that can produce the video of the handing over ceremony in the model room of the America's Cup. Of course, we can't invite the press in because they're not, they're not members. And, um, and uh, so we can, however, this fellow can reproduce some, you know, enough copies to distribute out in the main street. What do you think about that? And Mr. Cronkite, who was then, his claim to fame, God bless him, said that he was the president, he was, sorry, the chairman of the library committee of the New York York Club. So here he was, had just uh, you know, interviewed uh, Cuban, you know, Prime Minister and got all these different people. So he was the man of the world. It's funny, isn't it? So he was the president of the, uh, the chairman of the Library Committee of the New York Club. So that's why he was invited for advice. So uh, Walter said to uh, Commodore McCulley, he said, sir, if we do this, we'd be the laughing stock of the world because at that stage, the America's Cup will be owned by the world, not by us. So uh, eventually they took it down to the Marble House and presented it. And the first part of the presentation, the guy called uh, Bob Stone, Com uh, rear Commodore Stone, he presented a hubcap to uh, Benny, because Benny said, Ben Lexon said, that if we ever win that bastard, uh, that trophy, I'm gonna get a steamroller and flatten it, okay? So he presented a hubcap to Benny before the America's Cup was presented to us. It was just fantastic. And it was just beautifully, they did it in great style. But um, yeah, it was a uh, you know big deal in Australia and still is. It's considered one of the great, uh, not sporting moments. They did a survey recently, the most memorable events in modern Australian history, John F. Kennedy's assassination, Armstrong on the moon, and Australia too crossing the finishing line. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, when you lifted the cup, did you have any idea in part of what you'd achieved, but also how, just how it was perceived at home. No, we had the very feel, the very little feel, and no one could have, you know, let's face it, because the country just stopped. People were being pulled out of bed to watch this thing, you know. Princess Mary of Denmark, who will be the new Queen of Denmark, she told me that, uh, you know, her father pulled her out of bed at four in the morning you know, to watch this strange thing happening, you know, and it's all in that era, you know, the race was, nearly four hours long, 
Not 40 minutes. <laughs> what about Alan Bond? After a decade of trying, what was his reaction? Straight to Wall Street. Straight to Wall Street. He had every investment banker wanting to meet him and every Saudi Arabian prince wanting to lend him money. So he was, he was flying. His long-term plan worked well, for a while. His, his dream of, um, of global, um, global trade was there, yeah. How life-changing was that day in September 1983 for John Bertrand? Well, it got the, um, it, it gave me a sense of um, contentment. I think that's possibly the biggest issue for me, uh, where, and, uh, you know, we, you, you know, you know, there's the same thing, you know, the, the drive, the competitive environment of people. Some people have more competitive drive than others. Well, and I've, I tell people that, you know, to be a world champion, you're not a normal person. You've got to be crazy in some manner to get out of bed to do extraordinary things. And I'm part of that sect, and Rouser will say the same thing. And you would be the same, double Olympic gold medalist. You, you, know, you are different. You have to be different to have done what you've done. And similarly with, uh, you know, with Dennis Connor and, and Buddy Melgers and these characters, you know, they're different people. And for me, it put a, uh, it was a sense of contentment, which you, I, you know, I can't put a value to. And of course, in addition to that, it's allowed me to meet literally anyone in Australia and literally anyone in the world as a result of what I've done, yeah, and what I've, you know, our team have done as, a, as an organisation. Looking at the influence the Cup has on sport now and its athletes, how big a momentum shift was that day in September 83 for our sport? Yeah, so it changed the game, clearly. It changed the world of America's Cup. You know, the 87, I think there were 13 challengers that competed the year before in the World Championship in Fremantle. So um, it, uh, Michael Fay, who then funded, uh, I think it was three New Zealand uh, challenges, he said to me that he was watching on television and his conclusion is if those bastards can win it, maybe we can do it. You know, this is the Kiwi attitude. And the same uh, situation where it gave people, uh, you know, it, it took it to another level in terms of perhaps we can do this uh, if we really give it our best. And that's it. So uh, it opened the game up within the World of America's Cup. And uh, it gave a, uh, a lot of stories for a lot of people, that's for sure. For a man with such a very obvious love of our sport, who's been involved his whole life. You've also worked in other sports, experienced the way they operate. How has sailing progressed in your time and, and what shape do you think the sport's in? Well, the, the sport is, in terms of from a technical point of view and coaching point of view, it's just taken it to another level. You know, the learning curve that I was on uh, and still am is relatively, well, it's, it's, it's steep in terms of most people's uh, view because I'm a I'm a born student of life. I ask questions. I'm always learning. However, fully coached, you know, the Kovalenko groups and these other people, it just takes it to another level of, you know, the learning curve is much more steep. So the quality of racing, watching the Olympics, let's say, um, in Tokyo, the level of, of, of racing is sensational. And in Paris, it'll be higher again. And Los Angeles, it'll be just another level again. That's human endeavour. 
so I look back in our uh, in my Finn days when I was Olympics, it was amateur hour relative to now, and the America's Cup. We're highly progressed. Ms. Kinsey said that we're on a new S curve of development, both in all ways, both technical and also our team building. But you look back, you know, forty years on now, and it's just another world. You know, recently uh, we're up at. Uh, you know, with Ben Ainsley at the Mercedes F1 headquarters where Ineos is, and it's just another world of computer power and whatever. It still gets back to human beings, but regardless. So the sport has progressed dramatically from a technical point of view and performance. Where are we at? Well, it's kind of, I think there were crossroads in many ways. Uh, I was uh, with Thomas Buck, the uh, president of the IOC recently in Lausanne, and uh, he was talking about the Olympics, uh, you know that uh, they've now got into the uh, in, into the suburbs uh, of of uh, cities, and hence rock climbing and skateboarding and these new sports being delivered. Perhaps the whole issue of online gaming will be an Olympic sport into the future. Long way to go with that, but putting all that aside. So the sport of sailing, if you talk about the Olympics and the exposure of sailing within the Olympics, we've got to be careful that we remain relevant to the audience. And a lot of stuff is old world. We love it, there's no question about it. But we've got to be aware that, uh, you know, we're dealing now with young people with different aspirations. Um, I think the concern of overcoaching is always of concern. Parents living through their children, it's a big one. And this issue of is watching the bubbles go past such that you know that you have this whole issue of, uh, of, uh, of passion and for people to retain that passion of the sport for because it can be a life obsession it can be a life journey that's part of our challenge as a sport it's been an astonishing career in sport john what do you think the talented thomas pierce your great granddad what would he have made of all of this Gee, I think he'd be. Uh, I think he'd be proud. Clearly, as you know, one would expect, and his mind would boggle in terms of the technology and the, uh, the level of human performance that can be uh, can be pulled together uh, in, within this sport of sailing. You know, because the thing that I'd love is is this concept of you know what's the game going to look like in twenty years' time. And let's apply that to now. Let's get there faster than anyone else in the world. And uh, that was the philosophy behind the Australia 2 program. We think we know what the status quo is at the moment. That's fine. All we do know is in 20 years' time, we'll be much further progress. You look at the Olympiad, every four years, you get improvements. Every 20 years, a massive improvement, whether it's throwing a javelin, sailing a, four, you know, a boat, 100 metres uh, swim much further progress. So the question is, how do we get there faster than anyone else in the world? That was basically a philosophy behind the Australia 2 program and this issue of bringing a team together to create this incredible sense of trust. That's an easy word to say, but it's hard to do. Real trust deep down, such that you can perform under any, any pressurised environment. Um, that is only going to get more and more sophisticated over time because that's human endeavour. What would you have told that little lad building a boat with his brother and venturing out into the bay, about to embark on a lifetime of sailing adventures? John, what would you say to him now? I think uh, 
you know, life is a journey. You know, we this whole uh, idea of uh, higher, further, and faster. That's of interest, but this whole issue of just loving the sport for what it is. I remember when I first went, we pulled the sail on and we couldn't believe it that the, that we're just going through the water. It just it blew me away. It still does. John Bertrand, it's been an absolute honour. Thank you so much for your time and your memories. Thank you. My pleasure. A more eloquent summary of the love of our sport I could not possibly ask for, ladies and gentlemen. Decades spent at the very pinnacle of yacht racing and John Bertrand still marvels at the joy of the wind in his sails. John, on behalf of all our listeners, a massive thank you for your time and for your energy and enthusiasm for the sport. Sailing is lucky to have you. Well, that's it for this month. But I don't mind telling you that next month we've got another massive name from the sport of sailing. One of the biggest names from the current crop of fast-foiling sailboat skippers. A multiple world champion, an America's Cup winner and one of the most sought-after helms in the game. Coming up in a few weeks' time. Until then, if you're enjoying what you hear, buy us a coffee. It's easy to do. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast helping us bring you these uninterrupted ad-free chats from the leading lights in the sport of sailing before we go a big big thanks to tim at vertical films whose tireless work and enthusiasm makes these podcasts possible tim thanks again for all the hard work keep in touch via social media i'm shirley sale on instagram and twitter and shirley robertson on facebook and if you're so inclined, why not head over to the podcast YouTube channel to check out the series of films on my double-handed offshore season racing with Dika Fari. Well, that's all from us this month. Thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water and sail safe, everyone. This is Castle One. Race officer speaking. Speaking. Oh, oh, is on boundary up ahead, 35 seconds out. Get okay, lower and faster here. Lower and faster here. Ho, ho, ho. That's a good one, Jimmy. Still gaining on the daylight there. Gaining on the daylight. We're looking at 10-5, 42. Matching him on the boundary, yeah. Copy. This is Castle One standing by. Out.